Hello, and welcome to another conversation in anthropology at Deakin, a podcast where we talk about life, the universe, and anthropology. Each episode, a few of us from Deakin sit down with a visiting fellow anthropologist to talk about their work, about the state of the discipline, and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. I'm David Giles, I'm a lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University, and I'm here with my co-host, Timothy Neal, who's a research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. Uh, and today we're speaking with Evan Kirksey, a senior lecturer and the Environmental Humanities Convener at University of New South Wales. Evan, who studies the political dimensions of imagination as well as the interplay of natural and cultural history, is the author of two books, uh, Freedom in Entangled Worlds, which came out in 2012, and Emergent Ecologies, published in 2015, as well as being the editor with Stefan Helmerick of uh, the 2014 collection, The Multi-Species Salon. Uh, and also joining us in our conversation today is Emma Koval, uh, Professor of Anthropology at the Alfred Deakin Institute. Uh, so thanks for joining us. Uh, the, we're going to start off with a big broad question, uh, which is just how did you become in, interested in anthropology in the first place? So when I was uh, in, in high school, I went to Indonesia as an exchange student, and I ended up living in a really interesting sort of cultural hybrid landscape. I, I lived uh, in, in the house of a rock star. Uh, his name was Sam Bimbo. Uh, he does calligraphy, mm-hmm. Islamic calligraphy, and um, he leads the Bimbo group, which is his... Um, family uh, music group. He's, he's and so a lot of people sort of compare him to Bob Dylan of Indonesia. Um, so, so I was basically mm. there for six months, my senior year of high school, and um, it, I thought I wanted to be a biologist when when I was going to to college. Um, but uh, I, I basically just had a really good uh, anthropology teacher my first semester, and you know I, I didn't really have any kind of frame for for thinking about this experience that I just had that was, you know, really outside of my suburban world. I grew up, uh, uh, went to high school outside of Washington, D.C. in this uh, suburb, uh, Maryland. Uh, it's called Rockville. There's an R.E.M. song, Don't Go Back to Rockville. It's <laughs> another year. And so, so I was, like, desperate to get mm-hmm. out of Rockville. So first I went to Indonesia, and then I went to college. And, yeah, my, my, my um, uh, professor uh, was Maria Vespiri. She... Uh, uh, went to school at Princeton, studied under Geertz and uh, Vincent Carapanzano, um, Kenneth Burke, and she she basically is um, someone who really uh, is is good at sort of the craft of writing and the craft of ethnography. So she she taught me to be a writer, and um, she she was actually a journalist for uh, fifteen years before she went back to to teach anthropology. So it's it really just like having that experience as a youngster, like going to some place that um, just was really different from where I'd grown up, and and then like suddenly stumbling into this class, like you know pe- people started suggesting like oh you should you, you know you had this experience in Indonesia you should like take this this anthropology class to make sense of it. Hmm, fantastic. Um, can you tell? Uh, just to follow up, can you tell me a little bit more about where the writing, the, the craft part of the writing comes into your work? Because it seems like it, you know, in some ways what you're doing is very, very, you know, theoretical and uh, intervenes in all these really sort of uh, uh, academic ways. And yet the writing seems like uh, an, uh, an ever-present part of it. Yeah. 
So, so I did my PhD um, in, in a program in Santa Cruz that was founded by Hayden White. Um, he is this sort of radical historian um, who kind of like took took apart this story that historians used to tell themselves that um, you know history was this objective, sort of almost scientific enterprise. Um, there, you know, the archive had these these facts in them, and and Hayden White basically said, you know, you've got these things, these singular existential propositions that we might call facts, but you can string those facts into possibly an infinite variety of stories. So, so I think that program, you know, combined with like my early training from, from Maria Vespiri to, you know, really focus on like how to tell stories and how to like craft a paragraph, and, you know, we... She, she went over so many drafts of my essays when I was a, 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 a budding undergraduate. But, but I think it's, it's that having that sense from Hayden White, so the, the program's called the History of Consciousness Programs, where Donna Haraway teaches and James Clifford and Angela Davis. So, so you know, that, that sense from um, Hayden that you could kind of tell any story from, you know, the, just like opening up the universe of possible stories with the empirical stuff. Um, that, that's that's where I started to explore like you know more more creative modes of what he calls narrative employment. Thank you. And and then how about the the biology part? So, um, undergrads in biology, you do what we would call your honours in biology. Actually, no. I, so I so I'm still a wannabe biologist, and so so I was a double major as an undergrad. So I was uh, first and foremost a cultural anthropologist, and then um, also did a double major in biology. And I had I had the I guess I'm sorry interrupting you here, but. Uh, I, I had the desire to do two honors theses, one in anthropology and one in biology. I only finished the anthropology one, but then when I came back uh, with a postdoc grant, so I was really interested in ants as, as uh, a, a young student, and I was a research assistant on some uh, behavioral ecology projects involving ants in Costa Rica and Panama. Um, so I had this whole honors project in motion to study this one uh, ant, Ectotoma ruidum, that, that shares food with strangers. Uh, it sort of interrupts a lot of, um, you know, ideas from sociobiology or ideas about like inclusive fitness and that sort of stuff. Um, so I actually went back as a postdoc and finished my honors thesis <laughs> while, while kind of writing Emerging Ecologies, this, this book that was that sort of set out as initially an ethnography of place, an ethnography of a tropical ecology field station. Um, and, and I spent a chapter of that book like focusing in on my favorite aunt, Ectotoma. Um, but then I also uh, partnered with um, a senior Smithsonian scientist, Bill Weislow, and a research assistant, uh, Santiago uh, Mensis, and, and we're, we're in the process right now of finally finishing my honors thesis and, and, and publishing it as a biological research intervention. So, yeah, I, I, I maintain that that interest, and, um, and and I think one particular branch of biology that sort of uh, struck me as something interesting from a very early age was ethology, the, the study of, of animal behavior. Um, not in a lab, but sort of outside in um, multi-species worlds, to use one of my favorite phrases. Um, and so my first semester of college, I, I found a professor who was willing to just like sit down with me one-on-one and teach me ethology. 
Um, so it's something I still use in my work. And as I'm doing this descriptive uh, ethnographic work, I'm very much you know relying on that early training that was about not just you know talking to people and hearing what people say and observing what people do, but that descriptive technique of ethology. So most ethologists, well, for starters, ethology is kind of fallen out of favor with with mainstream science. Like there's more quantifiable forms of of scientific enterprise with fancier tools that have kind of taken over, um, you know, field field ecology. Um, But those who do practice ethology are are trying to select these fixed behavior patterns and just quantify them and, and look for statistical significance. So, so I guess I'm kind of trying to do that work of narrative implotment and using Hayden White again to like take these like behaviors that I learned, like these these facts about what happened in the world, and maybe explore the possibilities of of narrative and storytelling um, to to sort of push beyond those fixed behavior categories, but to you know do some speculative work across the species interface. Well, that kind of brings us to the question. Uh, what is multi-species ethnography? I mean, you've talked about ethology, and so it's clearly different from that, but I was wondering if you could kind of give us a tour of, like, what is multi-species ethnography, where did it come from, why did it come from? Well, one distinction I'd like to make is that it's not animal studies, right? So a lot of folks are doing animal studies and branding it as multi-species ethnography, but, you know, if, if you're just focusing on one kind of animal, like... For me, that's not it. Like, I'm I'm interested in you know these these entangled um, you know critters that live within us. You know, microbes in our gut that are um, sort of shaping who we are. Um, you know, the the ecological assemblages that that sustain our modes of life. The ways that um, other other kinds of agents in the world around us make us who we are and then, and then vice versa like how, how do our political and economic systems and legacies of warfare uh, you know create and destroy worlds um, you know what what are opportunities that emerge at the intersection of, of you know warring forces um, so, so multi-species ethnography is basically a descriptive technique for, for you know, exploring that, that question that Donna Haraway asks, you know, when, when species meet um, is, is, is all about, for her, like this question, who do I touch when I touch my dog? Like here, you know, it's not just about the dog, but it's the entangled histories, the, uh, what, what Joe, Joe Dumit calls um, uh, implosion stories that are tangled up in the dog and tangled up in the flesh and tangled up in the microbes. Um, so, so it's for, for me. I guess it, it, it's often a very myopic project in the sense of like, okay, you follow a species or an object as it moves through worlds and see who and what it touches, and um, following those assemblages and chains of association is sort of how I go about my work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I think doing multi-species ethnography well does involve either collaborations with folks who. Um, know something serious about birds or zoospork fungi or um, you know particular plant genera, um, or or it involves um, you know in, in art worlds uh, people talk about the de-skilling and reskilling moment. There there's you know this post Joseph Boys who said um, you are all artists. There was this real flourishing of of you know folks that didn't have the conservatory training that didn't go through the the standard path of becoming an artist like exploring their creative impulses. 
Um, but but I think Claire Bishop, a, 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 a critic of, of art who I overlapped with at the CUNY Graduate Center, is, is really critical of, of some of those moves, pointing out that like, yeah, to, to do some of this, like it, 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 it requires skill to, to do this. So I, I think in the same way that like doing good art interventions requires, you know, not just de-skilling, but re-skilling, um, multi-species ethnography, I, I see in the same light. So I, I see, you know, there's all sorts of opportunities to poach and purloin, to take tools and ideas from other disciplines, to enter into those strategic collaborations. But at the end of the day, you know, take take that knowledge and, and, and tell your own stories. Hmm. So just to follow up on that, I guess, is there a point where you have to make decisions about, you know, you're in a given situation, it's replete with species. Mm-hmm. How do you choose which ones to follow? I mean, yeah. who do you take your guidance from in a, in a, in a let's say, in a field situation? Yeah, Marilyn Strathern has this great piece um, that's critical of actor network theory. It's called Cutting the Network. And, and the key thing in that piece is, you know, it's knowing when to stop. And, um, yeah, that, like knowing where to start and when to stop are kind of some of the, the most difficult questions, I, I think, in, in any fieldwork practice. I, I think... Um, you know, sometimes from just a single momentary encounter, you can write a whole book. Um, and I come back to that idea of myopia, just like being so relentlessly focused on that one thing, but then making yourself vulnerable to the stories that explode as, as you get into that one critter, that individual animal or that individual plant or a kind of animal and plant as it's torqued by others. Um, so, so I very much see species not as like, you know, Tim, Tim Ingold says that when we talk about species, we risk imposing anthropomorphic or anthropocentric categories on the world. But I really see species as um, critters that are becoming with one another. So, so these processes of categorization, differentiation, and recognition aren't just happening because people impose categories on the world. But all kinds of life are, are engaged in, in those um, uh, acts of recognition, whether it's rec- recognizing kind and kin or whether it's recognizing the enemy with whom there might be the real violent struggle to the death or whether it's recognizing a companion species, you know, a, a, a kind of life that makes you who you are and vice versa. Maybe you need to just follow your gut, or yeah. you might say follow your microbiome to take a multi-species take. Yeah, uh, that seems like it brings us to the uh, one of the next questions we wanted to ask, which was sort of about what's at stake in deciding which names to give things. Like why do you call uh, use the word critters uh, versus you know any number of other words, and why use the word non-human? Uh, so yeah, what what are all the different sort of layers of uh, of considerations that have to go into deciding how to name something. So for starters, and I'm going to say more about this in my talk later today, I, I think the word non-human, first of all, assumes too much about the thing it opposes. It assumes too much about the human, but it also implies a lack of something, like non-white, you know, it's, it's lack, lacking whiteness. Um, so, so I've actually tried to really avoid that that term, and I think critter is, is a good placeholder that doesn't, you know, it's it's got at least like in the southern U.S. like there's sort of like an association. I don't know. It's almost like a redneck association. I think it, it's it's something that I think a lot of folks have picked up from Haraway, and and I don't think that the term critter has been 
particularly like carefully theorized, but um, you, you know, I, I think um, there, there's a way that the word multi-species has started to travel in, in some kinds of ways that I feel uncomfortable with, like when, when one is actually talking about a critter, when one's talking about an organism or a holobiont, and a holobiont is the or- organism plus ecological entanglements. Um, you know, I, I think there's a way that some people are starting to use that word multi-species to mean organism or to mean holobiont or to mean critter. So, so I think the figural specificity of our language is so important. And I, I think critter kind of displaces, um, yeah, ways of, of naming and categorizing in, in sort of a playful, subversive um, way that... I guess undermines certain sorts of expert discourse and, and open, opens up just like a, a new idiom. Uh, also, just thinking about some of the anthropology's baggage, uh, you know, there obviously you're engaging uh, and intervening in some uh, some critiques of how anthropology has named things in the past as well. I mean, not the human centric, but probably larger than that. Do you want to talk a bit more about where you? Where you're prodding? Yeah, so, so of course, like there's a really long history in anthropology of, of engaging with other forms of life, whether it's um, uh, Morgan's book on the beaver, where he's studying the engineering culture of, of these animal mutes, um, or um, like back back in the day, like around Morgan's time when the disciplines weren't really solidified, you had ethnomalacology, which was you know not ethnobiology, ethnobotany. Ethnozoology were there too, but also ethnomalacology, which is the study of, of mollusks and, and conchs from sort of an ethnographic point of view. So, so, so I think you know what we saw for much of the 20th century in anthropology were that animals and other kinds of life appeared in the realm of the symbolic, uh, appeared as food for people. And, and I guess the key move that Stefan Helmreich and I were trying to make with the emergence of multi-species ethnography is, is to not just take those either utilitarian or you know hermeneutic approaches to, to these worlds that we live in, but 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 to think think more in terms of ontological entanglements and, and ways that our lives impinge upon the lives of others and their lives impinge upon us. So it's nothing new, really. It's just <laughs> a return. It's a return. We're basically just yeah doing what Morgan did. Um. So I want to um, move a bit to what you you did discuss it a little bit before in uh, your work with art and your work with bioart, just um, organising exhibitions, which has actually been quite a, a substantial part of your work, of your time anyway. Um, and my question is, why would an anthropologist make a fridge for a frog? <laughs> well, that piece in particular... Um was me trying to grapple with a really difficult story to tell. So the golden frog of Panama is in effect extinct in the wild, but some US biologists collected it in Panama the same year that the US military occupation was ending. So there's this long legacy of US empire in Central America in general, and specifically in Panama. There's this 100 year period more or less where there were US soldiers on the ground, there was the canal zone you couldn't go unless you had a special pass if you're Panamanian. Um, so, so the collection practices and the salvation practices of this particular frog 
basically have continued those imperial legacies. So, so the frog, the conservationists were super excited when they brought it back to the States and it made 2,000 babies. Um, and they quickly filled up the Baltimore Zoo and Aquarium. And then some of those babies made 2,000 babies. And they started shipping them out to all of the other zoos around the States. And very quickly, all the zoos kind of ran out of space, like no more space for the golden frog of Panama. Um, Panamanian biologists, meanwhile, were asking for their frogs back. Um, this is a, 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 a national symbol in Panama. It's on lottery tickets. Um, the Day of the Frog has become like a thing in Panama. Um, and, and this mass extinction event was anticipated. Everyone saw this wave of fungal disease passing through Central America, moving at a rate of about 15 miles a year. And they, they knew that the frog was about to, to, to die off. The fungus showed up, and it did. Um, so it's in sort of that context, like the, the imperial politics of collection and salvation and refusal of repatriation that I designed this fridge. So um, I, I basically created a temporary home um, uh, for those frogs that, that were sort of viewed as being excess by the people managing the population. So um, now every time the Panamanian golden frog has 2,000 babies, um, it's one of the zookeeper's job to select the 60 healthiest looking frogs to live, and then they mm -hmm. euthanize the rest, they gas them. So um, I was trying to tell this story, and, and not tell this story in just a critical way to say like, you're doing biopolitics badly, but to make a concrete proposal. So, so Beatrice de Costa wrote a book called Tactical Biopolitics. She, she's one of the um, leading bioartists who helped define the field. We, we were PhD students together in Santa Cruz. Um, she's since passed away, but um, her, her book, Tactical Biopolitics, is both about exposing how biopolitical relations work, but making concrete proposals for doing biopolitics differently. And, and that's, that's what I was sort of, sort of aiming at with this fridge. We put an ecosystem inside with plants collected from all over the place. We put an Arduino on board that controlled the temperature and humidity. Um, we put a webcam inside to show uh, the zoological community that in fact we'd created this utopic possibility for a frog to live in our, our um, art space. Um, and it was a very hot summer that year in New York, um, so we needed the fridge to, to keep the frog cool. It's from the highlands. Um, and then we sent a proposal to the guy who manages the population saying, you know, we just want a couple of frogs, we're not going to breed them, we're not going to sell them, um, with the idea that maybe this could kind of catch on and that folks in their own homes throughout the U.S. and around the world can help um, save frogs in this era of mass extinction. So there's about 6,000 species of frogs, uh, about two to 3,000 of those are on, on the verge of extinction. The zoological community has made a long-term commitment to 10 species. So that leaves about mm -hmm. two or 3,000 species that are in effect orphaned in this moment, moment of, of planetary extinction. So, so, so by making this bridge, it was both trying to diagnose that problem and make a concrete proposal for doing things differently. And, and it was also what George Marcus calls a para-ethnographic object. It was an object that elicited stories and elicited narratives that otherwise were difficult to accept, like get access to. So with that fridge, I was able to send people this proposal, trot out my um, informed consent form, like, can I interview you? Yes, like, here are the conditions. 
and then have very frank conversations with the people who are managing the life and death of these frogs. Mm. Can I ask a follow-up question there? Um, because sort of in the background, throughout all the work that I've read that you've done, but in the background is this sense of A, fun, it's fun, <laughs> you're playful, um, and B, a real sort of ethical commitment, mm. uh, which is, you know, I mean, it's, it doesn't go unspoken, but it's not the... It's not at the forefront all the time. Can you just uh, tell me a little bit about what makes he, what drags you into all this? Well, in part, it, it was a, a really depressing PhD project in the sense <laughs> that I, you know my first book is about this nationalist movement that, in the current world order, like the thing that they hope for, independence from Indonesia, probably won't come into being, and it was a situation where there was this, you know, ongoing genocide. Like, I knew a lot of people who were killed. I witnessed massacres. So I needed a fun project. <laughs> and and for and part of it, too, was, like, um, I wrote a book that basically meant I couldn't, like, immediately go back and do more field work mm-hmm. there. Um, it's, it's, it's a situation of very difficult access. Um, and the... Like the the Indonesian law is is actually quite fuzzy, but it gets manipulated by the security forces there. So after after I wrote my book, um, I wanted to be doing field work somewhere else, and I wanted a fun project, and not a, not a depressing project. And arguably, like a lot of the situations that I'm grappling with in emerging ecologies and the multi species salon, are also kind of like, you know, not you know not so happy. So the Deepwater Horizon. Uh, uh, oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, these bombed out landscapes in Panama and Costa Rica, these mass extinction events. Um, And and I guess maybe what I learned from that first project, um, the project about West Papua, was was sort of how to find hope in situations of seeming impossibility. This is what my Papuan mentors were constantly doing, is in situations where like if you just approached it like let's stick the facts like let's be just real about the geopolitical situation like there's no room for hope here but somehow they held on to hope so so i guess i kind of working through the detritus of of empire in the americas working through the leftovers from biotechnology labs um you know where, where there's a lot of um ongoing use and exploitation of, of animals and, and research practice. I'm always trying to look for worlds that might be otherwise and, and, and worlds that are otherwise. And in these moments of, you know, in, in, in emerging ecologies, I, I describe the moment when the Gringos left, right? So for hundred, like a hundred years, um, collective hopes in Panama were, were, um, and not on the arrival of a messiah like you know Benjamin talks about the messiah that's going to walk through the straight gate and you know, radical possibilities are, are going to manifest and Panama folks were hoping that this this figure didn't arrive but left the gringo and so, so I watched this bubble of hope and happiness emerge and then not quite pop but just sort of fizzle so, so I guess I'm, I'm interested in how happiness and hope come together at, at the intersection of, of, of these worlds, even, even amidst destruction, even amidst ongoing violence, even amidst asymmetrical risks and vulnerabilities, whether that's in human worlds or multi-species worlds. It's kind of a last question. I'm interested in how 
multi-species ethnography kind of travels outside the realms of anthropology. Um, one way of saying that is to whom does multi-species ethnography speak, but I'm also curious about how it's listened to um, by other disciplines, whether those are humanities, social science, or physical science. Yeah, I think it, there's really different audiences that have picked it up. You see some biologists that are starting to try to approach their work with a, a multi-species ethnographic framework. You see um, historians doing multi-species history projects these days. Um, so, so, so I think it's it's you know it's, it's part of a rhizomatic zeitgeist. And, you know, I think my work is one part of it. I, I think definitely Donna Haraway and, and, and the whole Santa Cruz crew, you know, that at least in my mind, that's kind of where my key inspirations come from. So there's, there's amazing stuff coming out in a lot of different fields. And, and uh, yeah, I think all of us kind of look to Donna and like, wow, this amazing person who, like, yeah, she just crystallizes things um, and does so in a way that is just constantly surprising. And, and maybe that's where the fun comes from, too. I think she teaches you to think with figures and, and play with figures and be a poacher and be a trickster. So um, I, I think that's how I learned how to tell fun stories in this difficult situations. And when you tell those fun stories, though, back to ecologists, or do you find, like, have you found ecologists, for instance, read your work, and, like, how do they receive it? Well, one, actually, a frog biologist said, you're telling a completely wrong story. You need to be telling an apocalyptic tale. And, yeah, I mean, but I think the apocalypse has happened a lot in a lot of different places, in a lot of different worlds, and um, and, and I think there's, you know, there's a certain, um, like, pleasure that some people get out of, like, living with the apocalypse. And, and, and I try to characterize that ethnographically in some places, too. So in New Orleans, as, as the uh, Gulf was being flooded by oil, you know, people, in, in their words, were partying like it was 1999, like when we thought that Y2K was going to destroy all the computers. And mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a certain sort of revelry that, that emerges amidst these um, situations that seem to be getting really bad, like in the face of, you know, as, as the existing order is destroyed, radical possibilities come into view. Um, but, but yeah, I think, you know, some ecologists want a more... Um, stick to the facts, melancholic, nostalgic longing for a natural order that doesn't have human signatures on it. Um, longing for the world before the Anthropos and the Anthropocene. Um, but yeah, like it or not, I think we're living with the fact of, you know, our political and industrial systems scaled up to embrace and endanger planetary ecologies. Um, so yeah, and, and, and I think against the backdrop of the planetary, the, the stories that I've tried to focus on and find are, are the ones sort of that are in the dirt and messy and not sort of abstract and, and global, but you know specifically situated and entangled. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I, I think in, in part I guess I see my work as, as, as just trying to create a space for alternate modes of storytelling um, 
that, that I think were eclipsed for many years by this this very you know flat debate between nature and nurture. Like I, I grew up during the science wars in the nineties and. Um, I sometimes felt like a traitor, you know, I was going to my cultural anthropology class, and then I would go to my organismic biology class, and like I would hear really different ideas about what makes the world work, and at that point I wasn't able to reconcile these two radically different, you know, sets of epistemological norms and interpretive norms. Um, so, So I think like throughout my career what I've tried to do is just sit with those incompatibilities and find stories that you can tell in the interstitial spaces that, yeah, I think the biologists read it and sometimes they're like, okay, but I do science. <laughs> this is not that. Um, so, yeah, and I think maybe that's why I'm going back and trying to tell some of these stories in the language of statistics and p-values and doing that translation work. Because I think ultimately... You know, we can tell stories to ourselves and then tell stories that travel in particular ways. And I think there's ways that the art makes it travel to a public audience, but I think some of the translational work that needs to be done is figuring out how to take insights about political economy, about excess and bataille, about, you know, ideas that don't have a ready foothold, um, stories that interrupt accounts of Darwinian fitness. Like how, how do we figure out how to tell that in the language of, of, of the natives, as it were, right? Because uh, many of us are trained in science and technology studies and you know, we're the observers and they're the observed, but I, I think that translational work can kind of go both ways. And, and some of the more interesting research that I've done has been sort of these, creating these open-ended spaces of, of discourse and, and discussion and encounter where you can kind of do live theory together in conversation with, with biologists. And I, I see that that's what the group here is doing too, so that makes me really excited. Thanks for joining us here in Anthropology at Deakin. We've been speaking today with Eben Kirksey from the University of New South Wales as well as Emma Koval from Deakin University. If you'd like to learn more about Eben's work, you can find him online at ebenkirksey.blogspot.com. If you'd like to learn more about anthropology, you can find us at blogs.deacon.edu.au slash anthropology.